on into college, and I had a love-hate relationship with one subject in particular, and that subject was language arts. <clears throat> I don't know if they still call it language arts now, or if they call it English or English Lit. I've heard different names for it. Uh, but, uh, but language arts, you know, you learn about grammar and all those fun things like independent clauses and dependent clauses and appositives and subjects and predicates. And then you get to learn about, um, you know, famous authors and their short stories and their poems and, and all of those things. And I had this love-hate relationship with it because I struggled with the grammar part and the reading comprehension part. I still struggle with reading comprehension. I read very slow and I have to read things multiple times. Um, but I loved the, the creative writing aspect of, of language arts. I loved being able to analyze a story and look for allusions and, and all this different stuff. And so I had this love-hate relationship. I get my schedule for seventh grade or eighth grade language arts or, or high school. And I would always look to see, okay, where's, where's language arts going to be on that schedule? Like, wh wh what's going to happen? Is it going to be after lunch? Am I going to have a full belly? Am I going to be able to stay awake for this class? Is it at the end of the day? Like, just make it through the day and then finally I'll get to exit after the class is over. Or was it really early in the morning? Like, that's how I'm going to start my day. Uh, so this is love-hate relationship with language arts. And as I've talked to students today, uh, junior high students, high school students, even college students, I actually had a conversation with a college student this week, not my own college student, but another one, and they have the same love-hate relationship with, with language arts, with, with English. And so we know it can be challenging, but why do we continue to teach it? Why do we teach it at elementary and at junior high and at high school and then on into college? Because we know that language is essential to communication, isn't it? We, we, we have to have language, whether that language is spoken, written, typed, uh, even signed for, for those in our deaf community. We have to have language, body language, like what you see on someone's face, how their posture responds, like, like language communicates messages that are essential to life, messages of our emotions, what we're feeling, what we're thinking, uh, what we're believing, our dreams, our hopes, our ambitions, uh, messages of connection, messages of need, we need language to communicate those messages. So in short, we know that language matters. But I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. You know that language matters. You know that if you're a parent and you had a, a child, you brought that child into your home, um, whether through adoption or through, 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 through birth, and, and as you're, you're parenting that child, they reach these stages, and you want to see certain things. If you have a young child in your home, that child reaches an age, they start making sounds, and uh, then you and the child's older siblings and their aunts and uncles and their grandparents all compete to see which name that child is going to say first, right? Is it going to be mommy? Is it going to be daddy? Is it going to be grandpa? Is it going to be Jeff? Is it going to be George? I mean, what's it going to be? Is it, what, what name's going to be said first? Why? Because language matters, right? Um, those of you that have parented small children, you read on a mommy blog or a parenting blog, and you see like when your child should be saying its first words. And uh, if your child isn't saying his or her first words when that blog said, you start to maybe hit the panic button um, because language matters. Language matters. We see it in employers, uh, in organizations, in companies. They will spend thousands of dollars on branding, on uh, getting their language right. So when they communicate their message, their mission, their vision, their values, 
that, that they're clear, they're articulated clearly. Uh, they'll spend thousands of dollars helping their employees know and speak that language because language matters. Why is it that if you go into Chick-fil-A this week or if you went in there last week and you order something and you say thank you the eight out of 10 times, you're going to hear what? My pleasure. Because language matters. That's been taught. That's been instilled in employees. It represents part of who they are. They want you to feel welcome. They want you to be their guest. Again, because language matters. It communicates messages. Why is it that so many students have to learn a foreign language? Why is it that those of you that aren't even in school are going back and downloading foreign language apps so that you can learn how to speak another language? Because you've met somebody and you know that that speaking in a native language is important to communicating clearly. There's a message. Again, those messages of life, emotion and connection and dreams and ambitions. We know that language matters. So as we move into the next part of our School of Acts study, we're, we're looking at language of the kingdom. Because in God's kingdom, guess what? Language still matters. That shouldn't surprise us. We're made in his image. Our God is a God who uses language. Just look back at the early chapters of Genesis when the heavens and the earth are formed. Uh, God's spirit hovers over the deep. The earth was formless and void. And it says that God said, let there be light. Each day of creation, God speaks, and it is. Language matters. How did God communicate with human beings? He speaks to Adam and Eve in the garden. He speaks to Noah. He speaks to Abraham and calls him from his home to go to the land that he'll show him. He speaks to the patriarchs. He speaks to Moses. He speaks to his people. When Moses goes up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, God comes in the cloud and he's with him and he speaks and he gives Moses his instructions, what's commonly called the law, which is it's kind of different than how we think about law. We think about law as these rules in, in society that you can't break this law to go over the speed limit. You can't do that. Well, the law that God gives are his instructions and they include rules, but it's really just him teaching us and telling us about life, about purpose, what's true, how we should live. And God spoke that and gave that through language. Language matters. And we're made in his image. We are men and women created in his image. So language should matter to us as well. And as we journey through the book of Acts, we find that language, just like in the rest of the Bible, it matters. God uses language as his primary means, both spoken, uh, written, but also body language to communicate his message, his purposes, his meaning, his truth to the world. And we could look lots of places in Acts because language is all over it. People uh, go into cities and they declare his message to people. Um, But probably the most fascinating for many is Acts chapter 2. Uh, what happened on the day of Pentecost. And so I just want to focus on Acts chapter 2. We'll primarily look at verses 1 through 12. We'll branch out into verses 13, 14, 15, a little bit at the end. Um, But I just want you to see how we see language on display here. Acts 2 verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw that what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Uh, 
All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? As we read this account, maybe you're captivated by uh, the signs, the, the wonders of it. I think probably the descriptors in verses 5 through 12 represent how many of us read these words. Um, they cause bewilderment. Uh, they're amazing. They're perplexing at times. And so what is God doing here and how does that relate to language? Let's start with verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. The day of Pentecost, uh, it comes from a word, Pentecost, uh, comes from a word that means 50th. Uh, Pentecost was a name that was given to a Jewish festival and feast that had been celebrated since God gave his instructions to Moses. It was called the Feast of Weeks. Uh, involved the giving of first fruits to God from the harvest. The, the Feast of Weeks was um, 50 days after Passover. You would take the Sabbath of Passover and the, the instructions in Exodus 23 and Leviticus 23, as well as in Numbers and Deuteronomy, tell us to count seven weeks and a day, 50 days, from the Passover of the, of, of the, of the, of, from the Sabbath of the Passover, and you get the beginning of the Feast of Weeks, which would be Pentecost. That's where the 50 and the Feast of Weeks connect. The Feast of Weeks was a festival, it was a celebration of God's provision. The harvest would begin shortly after Passover, and the people would harvest the grain from the fields, and they would do this for the next several weeks, and at the end of the several weeks, they intentionally kind of hardwired into their life this festival so that they could offer back some of that grain to God, acknowledging that he was their provider. God had provided. So the celebration of the Feast of the Weeks was all about God's provision. God had taken care of them. He had come through for them again. And, 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 and he, was, he was there for them. And so it was this huge celebration. By about the second century BC, somewhere between two and 300 BC, another celebration had been associated with the Feast of Weeks. It was a celebration of the giving of the law. So when God gave the instructions to his people on Mount Sinai, they began to celebrate that along with the harvest during the Feast of Weeks. So here we have uh, these people gathered in one place. It's the day of Pentecost, some 50 days after Passover. Uh, they're waiting. We know that from chapter one. Jesus has told them, chapter one, verse four, to go into Jerusalem and to wait, to wait for the gift his father would give. And that gift was the Holy Spirit. So they're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting. Who's waiting? It says they were all together in one place. We don't know who's waiting here on the day of Pentecost for certain. We know that among them were at least the 12 disciples. At the end of chapter 1, uh, the disciples have replaced Judas with Matthias. And so there are 12 disciples. But the 
that they were all together may look back to the previous few verses about the disciples or to the whole 120 that are gathered in the room. So you have a group of either 12 or 120, somewhere in between, that are gathered in this room waiting for God to move. 50 days from Passover. And look at what happens, verse 2. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. So this amazing display unfolds. It says, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. If you read Acts and you read Luke's gospel, both works that he wrote and records for us, you find that Luke pays attention to a number of details. What's kind of interesting is he doesn't say that there was a blowing wind. He says there was a sound like a blowing violent wind that came from heaven and filled the room. Just to give us a taste of what this might be like, in a moment we're going to play an audio clip. It comes from Hurricane Irma here uh, just over a handful of years ago. Category 5 hurricane uh, as it was striking the Leeward Islands. Uh, here's the sound that a Category 5 hurricane with its violent wind would make if you'd play that. hard for me to imagine uh, being gathered in a space, meeting with people that I love and I care about, maybe, maybe sharing a meal, celebrating the harvest that God has provided. Yes, I'm waiting on God to bring his spirit, but I, I, don't, I don't know when that's going to come or how it's going to happen. And then suddenly the sound like a violent blowing wind comes from heaven, gets louder and louder and louder. But I can imagine how deafening it might have been, how disorienting it might have been. And as that happens, the disciples in that moment know something is, is, is happening. And beyond that, they begin to see this fire separate and kind of come in these uh, tongues or, or licks, these flames of fire that rest upon each of their heads. Something that they would have known that we likely don't often think about is that God often came in the Old Testament or was talked about in terms of fire. He is a consuming fire. Um, he speaks to Moses of the burning bush through fire. How does he rescue the prophet Elijah with chariots of fire? Uh, how does he destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with fire? Like fire is connected with God a lot. The prophets had spoken about the Spirit coming. John the Baptist, he's recorded as saying in Luke chapter 3, verse 16, that the one will come after him who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so the disciples in the upper room are probably thinking, this is the moment. This, 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 this wind we can't explain, I mean, the sound of wind that we can't explain, these tongues of fire resting on heads, like God's Spirit is coming in this moment. And that, in fact, is what happens, verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So the sound, these flames, it's God's Spirit coming just as he promised. It fills those present. 
and then they begin to speak in other tongues. You may have a footnote in your Bible like I have in mine that has me look to the, the bottom of the page, and it tells me that word tongues can also be translated languages. Those gathered begin to speak in languages that they had not previously learned. It's this miraculous enablement by God's Spirit. It is important to note that this gifting through the Spirit, this enabling of the Spirit in tongues is different than what Paul will write about later in one of his letters to the Corinthians. He'll talk about the gift of tongues, speaking in tongues, and he pairs that with someone who has the gift of interpreting. He talks about the sounds or the the babbling that's undecipherable unless there's an interpreter. Uh, That's different. We know that's different because here people can hear. They don't need an interpreter. They're able to understand. God, through his spirit, is enabling this special gifting in those present to declare him in the languages of the people that are around which incidentally I think is a great opportunity to think about the compassion of God. Uh, Here are people gathered in Jerusalem for the the festival or the feast, uh, the feast of weeks, and they need to hear about who God is and what he's done. And so God in his compassion who wants the whole world to know who he is enables his followers to speak about him in ways that those present can understand. That's elaborated on in verses 5 through 12. We'll look at those again. It says, Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under the heaven. Um, Of all the Jewish feasts, three of them were uh, the most prominent. They would draw more people on these pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And the Feast of Weeks was the center one. So they likely, uh, there was likely that there were more people in Jerusalem for this one feast or festival than any of the others when they made their trip because they could kind of come in the middle of all the festivals. So they're staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. They've come from the east, they've come from the west. When they heard this sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? They can tell by the dialect. Uh, These people are from Galilee, a region near them. Likely the Galileans only would have spoken Greek and Aramaic and maybe some Hebrew, and here they are speaking in their languages. It says, then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both those who have Jewish ancestry and those who converted to Judaism. There are Cretans there from the island of Crete and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? I have a map that shows this area of the world during this time. I borrowed it from the ESV study Bible. It gives you an idea of as the people are naming, these are people from these regions that are in Jerusalem. You look out to the east, uh, the right of the picture, and you can see where the the Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites would come from. You can move towards the center, working west, and see Judea and Cappadocia, keep working west, and you have Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, work south to Egypt. You can see that Basically, the whole Roman world, the known world for them, there are people from all over. 
As I read in some commentaries this week, the, the scholars suggest that there were at least 12 different languages that those who have been abled by the Spirit would need to speak to communicate in the languages of those that are represented. So this is an incredible phenomenon where, where God is choosing in this moment, through his Spirit, filling his people to share his message with the world. That's exactly what's happening. Look at verse 11. It says, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So as we think about language and we wonder, what's God doing here? He's filling people with his spirit, and that spirit enables them to do what? To share his message. They're declaring the wonders of God. What are the wonders of God? The wonders of God are those things that he has done for them, what he has done in history, what it means for their life, what it means for their future. Uh, The wonders of God, in short, would be a description that we might call the gospel. The gospel refers to the good news of who God is and what he's done and what that means for us, what he's done for us in Jesus and what that means for our present and for our future. So often when we think of the wonders of God, we just look back, this is what God has done. And often when we think about the gospel, we just look at what God has done. God sent Jesus, God saved us from our sin, but the gospel is more than just what he's done, it's what he's doing and he wants to do through us. The gospel is just as much about what God saved us from as what God saved us to. Yes, Jesus rescues us from sin, but he rescues us to a life lived for him, under his authority, for his truth, living for his purpose, finding our meaning and our identity and our hope in him. That's the wonders of God. And that's, that's what these, these people that were in the, in the room and are filled with the spirits, what they're declaring, they're declaring the gospel. It's easy when you read an account like uh, Acts chapter two, verses one through 14, to get so caught up in, what would it have been like? The, the rushing sound of rushing wind and the flames of fire. What's meant by the, the tongues of fire on people's heads? Like, let's, let's dive in more to the feast of weeks. But if we dive into those too far, we miss the greater point And that's that God was sending his spirit to enable his people to continue his work. And what was his work? To continue to bring his message through word and through deed to a world in need. God knew the brokenness of humanity. God knew that there were those who were dying, those who needed him, those who needed his hope. And so he says, I'm going to enable you enable you through my spirit to be my hands and my feet and my mouthpiece. And so the spirit enables his people to share his message with a world in need. Language matters and the spirit enables God's people to share his message, to use language of word written, texted, spoken, signed, uh, through body language to declare his message to a world in need. Now, there are some people who react a little oddly to this. If you look at verse 13, it tells that, that some said, well, maybe these guys have just had too much wine. And Peter says to them in verse 14, hey, they've not been drinking too much. Here's what's happening. This is actually the moment we've all been waiting for. We've been anticipating this. And he shares them words from the prophet Joel And that leads him into this more lengthy sermon that points them to how everything in history has been building to this point. That God is coming, God is working, God is moving, and Jesus is the way that he works and moves. He's coming to rescue from sin, yes, 
but to save his people to living life as he intended them to live it. And he ends that sermon by making an invitation to the people. And the invitation is pretty remarkable. It tells us that when the people hear this sermon, that they are cut to the heart. This is verse 37. And they simply ask Peter, what do we need to do? And here's Peter's response. Here's what you do. Repent. Make an about face. Turn the other way. Stop living for yourself. Be baptized. Be immersed into Christ, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And look at this. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God didn't just fill and enable those presents, but he says, now anyone who believes and trusts and follows me can be filled with my spirit. He says that promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So God sends his spirit to enable us to communicate his message. And that promise is for them and that promise is for us. God wants you and I to be his instruments to carry his message. He wants us to communicate his language of hope and purpose and identity and truth to a world in need, both through what we say and what we write, but also through our body language, what we do. So as we're looking at these words and we're looking at these subjects in the school of Acts, like what are you and I to take away from uh, this passage? Like what is it that God would want you to do? And I believe that if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're someone who considers yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, that he wants you to understand your place in continuing his work, that he has filled you with his spirit to carry his message. His message is, his message is of identity and hope and purpose and meaning and truth and, and, and everything that matters in life. He's, he's, he's enabled you through his spirit to carry that message to a world through words and through deeds, through words and actions, he wants you to be a part of it. You're infused with his spirit to change this world for his glory. We were at a reception on Thursday night, and as we went through the line and got some like appetizer things, you got to the end, and they had uh, two big like um, containers of water that looked really fancy, and uh, they both of them had different like fruits and leafy things in them. And uh, it basically was infused water. And I decided to get the one that was the least weird of the two. And it was infused supposedly with uh, basil and strawberry. And so I, I filled my cup with the water and I went back to my seat and I went to take a drink. And I thought, I'm expecting to taste something like basil and strawberry. I didn't taste anything. It tasted just like every other cup of Indianapolis water I've ever had. It said it was infused. And if you looked at the, the, the jug, like there were leaves and there were strawberries, they were floating, but that hadn't yet had enough effect to change the taste of the water. And I wonder if sometimes that's not a picture of those of us who are following Jesus. We're infused with his spirit but has it shaped, has it changed, has it affected the water of our lives enough that you can tell the difference? We are people who are given the spirit to go out and share with the world and be agents of his kingdom in the world. 
And so questions that we should be asking ourselves, I just wrote down a few that I'm asking myself, by the way. If everywhere I go, I'm to be a disciple of King Jesus, if every moment I navigate, if every moment that I endure is an opportunity to make a difference for him and live according to his purposes, then I have to ask these questions. Do I, do we who possess the Holy Spirit of God talk differently? Do we act differently in our places of work? in our schools, on our team buses, in our locker rooms, in the privacy of our homes, on our patios on a Friday night, at the game on Sunday afternoon? Do we reflect the infusion of the Holy Spirit that we have in how we treat people, in the words we speak, and in how we serve? Are we reflecting that change Do we, do I, I possess the Spirit, you possess the Spirit, do we prioritize our lives differently? Do we fight for the things that matter for the heart of God? Do we look after widows and orphans in their their distress? Do 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 we intentionally keep ourselves from being polluted by the ways of the world? Do we surround the vulnerable? Do we speak up for those who are victims of injustice? Do we come alongside the oppressed? Do we use our resources not just to build up our own kingdoms and to fill our own homes with treasures, but to invest in in helping other people around the world? The infusion of the Spirit should shape and change everything that I do. Do we treat our parents and our children and our kids differently than those who haven't been infused with the Spirit? When people hear how you talk to your spouse, when people hear how you talk to your kids, when people hear how you talk to your parents or how you talk about your friends, do they notice a difference? That's what the Spirit should do in us. Like God uses us to give his message to the world. So what language is being shared? What's being heard through your life and my life? Those are important questions we have to answer. Do we live differently, not allowing our lives to be conformed to the standards of the world, but to be renewed by his spirit, allow his spirit to renew our minds? I think the answer for us sometimes is yes, and sometimes no. And I think if some are honest in the room, the answer may be more no than yes. It's time for the body of Christ, for those who declare threads out of their pockets, um, for the body of Christ, for those that declare that he is their king and their Lord to say, you know what? He has to infuse everything. So where is it in my life that he's not infusing? Where does it not reflect the Holy Spirit's transformation? And I need to repent You need to repent. We need to go to him and say, God, I am not living in a way that reflects you here. Help me, show me, lead me, sustain me, guide me. Because as we reflect the difference that God makes, people are drawn to that. People are drawn to the light. They can't help themselves. Like, I mean, I remember just being a kid and I would go to someone's house and have one of those little bug zappers outside. Like, Like, you hear it popping and cracking, like flies and mosquitoes are dying by the second, and yet what can't they do? They cannot help themselves. When people see the light in your life, that you are different, that you have a peace, that you have a hope, that you have a joy, that you speak differently about people that you disagree with than others do, that you don't get as vindictive, that you don't get angry, that you don't hurt other people in the way that other people hurt, that that, that you live selflessly for others, they're drawn to that. They want that. 
and you have a chance to share with them, and God uses you, even as he used those disciples that were filled with the Spirit then to communicate his message to others. He may not gift you with being able to learn a foreign language like that, but he will put you in places and situations where your life can communicate the transformation and the power of being filled with his Spirit to others. There's another encouragement here that I think uh, we need to at least hit. If you look back to verse 2 in in Acts chapter 2, it begins with a word. Someone shout that out. Suddenly. Suddenly. Isn't it interesting that here are the disciples who are given directions 10 days before Jesus says, go and wait in Jerusalem for the gift my father will give. And they waited 10 days. And we can just glance past how long that would have been. Have you ever waited for something, though? Maybe you're waiting for him to pop the question. Uh, Maybe you're waiting for something else to happen. Maybe someone tells you that this is coming soon. And you wait. What happens in the first few days? Like, you feel like, I got this. I can wait this out. Day one, you feel strong. Day two, you feel great. Day three, uh, when's this going to happen? Day four, you get a little leery, a little worried, maybe apprehensive, some doubt kicks in. Day five, man, is this ever going to happen? Day six, you get your second wind. Day seven, day eight, day nine. Can you imagine waiting and waiting and waiting? But then everything changes. Suddenly, God moves and God acts. Why is that encouraging to you and to me? Because all of us go through seasons of waiting. I told you that's a theme in the book of Acts. Sometimes that season of waiting is brought on by grief. Sometimes it's brought on by tragedy. Sometimes it's brought on by maybe it's a mental health challenge. Maybe it's a job loss. Maybe it's a financial struggle. Maybe it's some sort of sickness, some sort of injury. Maybe it's pain. There are seasons of waiting. And in those seasons of waiting, it's as we continue to look to him saying, God, you told me you're going to help me. God, you told me you're going to come through that we build that anticipation and then we don't know the day, but there will be a suddenly when he breaks through. That doesn't mean he's gonna take all the pain away. It doesn't mean he's gonna give you a miraculous healing. It doesn't necessarily mean that all the grief's gonna go away. But as we keep looking to him, there will be a moment of breakthrough when suddenly it changes. And you see him more clearly. You're reminded of his faithfulness and his promises to you. And so we just keep seeking. What do those disciples do? They just went back and they waited. They didn't know it was going to be tomorrow. They didn't know it was going to be months from then. But as they waited, there was a suddenly for them. And as you wait and you turn your attention to the Father, to the one who made you, there will be a suddenly for you. Where you will be reminded that God has not forgotten you. That God is with you even in your difficulty. The final thing I'd like to encourage you with is that if you are yet to give your life to the Father, like to to turn from living for yourself to living for him, to trust and follow Jesus, to believe in him, to place your faith in him. I hope you'll just lean into this idea of provision. Here are people celebrating God's provision uh, in Jerusalem, Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. And maybe you just need to hear that there is a God who provides for you. There is a God who gives you the breath in your lungs right now. There's a God who created your life and has a purpose for you, even if you've yet to discover it. 
There is a God who provides a way to experience hope and peace and joy and fullness, even in this life of brokenness. And that God's made it possible by providing for you his son. We are separated from God because of our sin. The wrong things that we do, the things that go against his desires for us. Things that we intentionally do and those things that we just can't seem to help ourselves with. And yet God sent Jesus, his son, perfect, full of grace and truth to come and to live among us and to die a death that we deserved to take upon himself our sin, to bury it in a grave, that if we believe in him, we rise with him to living these new lives infused by the spirit. Lives that still are affected by sin. Lives that still struggle with sin sometimes, but God's making us new through his power. And we live for something far greater than we ever could without him. He provides all of that, the saving and what we're saved to, to be agents of his kingdom in this world. He's a provider, and I want you to know that so desperately. If you'd like to have conversations about what God has done for you, we invite you to do that in a few ways. Some of them have already been mentioned. I'm available at the end of our worship experiences when I'm here to have that conversation with you. We have connection cards at each of our communion stations around the room. You can write uh, your desire to know more about Jesus or whatever it is you're you're wrestling through and put that in the, the offering box. You can email us, connect at lebanonchristian.org. You can even scan the QR codes around our building that say, let's connect. Make sure they say, let's connect, because if you scan one that says life groups, you're gonna join a group you don't know anything about, right? But scan, let's connect, and we can connect with you uh, about how uh, God can make a difference in your life. God has filled us with his spirit and made that available to us that we can share his message with the world. Language matters. Let's pray. God, thank you. Uh, Thank you for your words. God, I thank you that through your spirit, uh, you inspired Luke to record your story, to record the story of Jesus' life, to record these early days of your people after Jesus came and lived and died and rose again. God, because through his words, we're able to find our place in your story. And God, I ask that you would help us, if we're already your followers, to be reminded of the treasure that we carry in these jars of clay, these treasures that we carry in our fragile lives. Like your spirit, your power lives in us. You are making us new, and you do that so that we can help other people encounter you. God, God fill us with a desire to, to bring our lives into alignment with what you desire what you've communicated through your word, what we've seen in your son's life, that we might have a profound impact for good on our world. And God, for those who have yet to surrender to you, draw them into 